Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. We are in a series called Gentle and Lowly, and if you would like to participate in this series, there's a number of ways you can join still a small group and stop out at the info desk in the hub and get into a small group and experience it in a community. You can purchase a book in our bookstore. We're selling them for $8, which is, uh, we're, we're not making money on that by any means, and can read along each week uh, with the chapters. And uh, there's also some, some devotional apps that are on the screen that you can download and uh, experience as well as you uh, work out, walk, run uh, with the app. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter three of um, Gentle and Lowly. As we begin, as Pastor Izzy said, a lot of you here this morning don't know all of you, don't know why you've come this morning but I believe it is at the very least to hear these words from Jesus. He says, come unto me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is kind. And my burden is light. Those words from Jesus to everyone here this morning. Chapter 3 of this book, Gentle and Lowly, that's launched from those verses is entitled, The Happiness of Christ. And we'd like to actually talk today about what makes Jesus, what makes God happy, full of joy. The chapter starts out with a uh, finish the sentence kind of quote from a Puritan theologian named Thomas Goodwin. The quote is, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by, and how might we finish that sentence? We could say something like, by his children exercising childlike trust in God, or when his witnesses Speak courageously the name of Jesus. That brings Jesus joy. Or maybe we could say when disciples forsake all to follow him. All of those are true. All of those would bring Jesus joy and happiness. But notice how Thomas Goodwin finishes the sentence. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. It, Dane Ortland, who wrote this book, Gentle and Lowly, he kind of summarizes the big idea of chapter 3 with these two sentences that actually I underline in the book. The first, just think on this. Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. And then this quote, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to Him. 
his heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. And then he rests all of this idea of the happiness of Christ on this one verse from Hebrews chapter 12. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? What is on the other side of that cross? Simply this, a forgiven family. The joy of Jesus is forgiving sinners. Wow. Today, what I'd like to do, and as we've said, uh, each week we'll mention the gentle and lowly, we'll point out the chapters, but we don't simply want the sermons to be a redundant repetition of what you'll read in the book. So we're going to use the sermons to be supplemental. And so what I thought I'd like to do today is actually see that this is not just a part of Jesus' heart in the New Testament, but that all along in the story revealed to us in the First and Second Testaments that God's heart finds great joy in forgiving sinners. And so I was thinking, who in the Old Testament, the First Testament, really experienced the joy of God in forgiving sinners? And I frankly did not have to think of too long of some sinners in the Old Testament. (laughs) But this one really stood out to me. I want to preach from the life of David. Now, understand how much God thinks of David. David has 69 chapters in the First Testament devoted to him. 69. He is referenced 52 times in the New Testament. And we always remember that Jesus was the son of David. That is, from Joseph as his stepfather, remembering the virgin birth. But Joseph was from the kingly line, and so Jesus, being his stepson, had a legal claim to the throne of Israel. What we often forget is that Mary, Jesus' mother, was a physical descendant of Jesus through David's son, Nathan. God thinks so highly of David that both parents come from his house. So what is it about David? What do we see in David's heart that connects him so deeply to God? That's what I want to talk about. We're going to tell a story, engage the story, go there with me, imagine it, be there, and then after the story, I just want to make two observations on the story that help us understand what makes Jesus happy, forgiving sinners. Sound good? All right. It was spring. In Colorado, we get snow in the spring. It's just, it was spring. Everything was fresh and new except David. The teller of this story from 2 Samuel 11 tells us that all the kings usually go out in the spring and they fight their battles. And indeed, Israel's army was out and they were finishing a battle with the Ammonites. They were going to win. 
David at this point, after two sterling decades of leading the nation as their king, he's in the prime of his life. He's at the pinnacle of his career. His approval ratings have never been higher. He has uh, amassed a, 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 a chunk of land, now 60,000 acres is the size of Israel. That's the size of Georgia, throwing that in for Maddie in Georgia and uh, for Billy. And anyone else from Georgia, we, you are welcome here. We, we welcome everybody. So. Also, not just a country, but a covenant. Just chapters earlier, God himself had told David, your house and your kingdom will always endure before me. Wow, that is a promise. David, all is well, except... David is sitting in Jerusalem, should have been out with his army, should have been winning the crown, and he's sitting in Jerusalem. Hmm. Well, one afternoon after a nap, it seems, he gets up and he walks out on the patio on his roof, and he sees there a woman bathing. The writer wants us to know that this is the ritual bath, that this woman is a faithful Jew, it's the end of her period, and she's just ceremonial cleansing herself. Really what the writer wants us to know is that she's not pregnant. David inquires who she is. His servants tell him that's, that's Bathsheba. And they tell her, David, that she is this, the daughter of Eliam and the husband of Uriah. Now what you need to know is that David knows these men. Both Eliam and Uriah are part of David's mighty men. They are the valiant 30, listed twice in the Old Testament as David's most famous and courageous fighting soldiers. David knows who she, whose. David knows whose she is. And yet he sends for her. He takes her to bed. He sends her home. Not prepared for such a David, man after God's own heart. Bathsheba sends word. A few weeks later, actually two words, with child. By this point in David's life, he's become quite adept at dealing with these murky situations. And so what he does is he tells his top general, Joab, to send Uriah home. The thought is that Uriah would go and see his wife, and then the child that Bathsheba's carrying would be Uriah's by appearance. What he underestimated was Uriah's conscience. Because Uriah's thinking, how can I go home and get foxy with my wife when all my buddies are in the foxholes and all the Ark of the Covenant is in the field? I won't do it. And he sleeps on David's doorstep with his servants. David tries again. The next night, he gets Uriah drunk. But Uriah drunk is a better man than David sober right now. And again, he sleeps with his servants on a mat in the front of the house. So David switches to plan B. And plan B is to write a letter to Joab, his top military commander, saying to put Uriah in the fierce fighting, have the army pull back, Understand that in carrying this letter back to Joab, Uriah is actually carrying his death warrant. 
We are not prepared for such a David. Man after God's own heart. It happens. It seems Uriah got close to a wall, the way Joab explains it. They pulled back, although there were some others, what should we call them? Necessary casualties. Word gets to Bathsheba. David, keeping up appearances, allows her to mourn. And then David takes her to be his wife. And we read this at the end of 2 Samuel 11. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's what we call an editorial comment. We go into chapter 12, first words, God, the the Lord sends. The Lord sends a prophet named Nathan, David's pastor, and uh, instead of confronting David with uh, banging him over the head with the five books of Moses or getting all up in arms, he confronts David probably the way we should learn to confront people by telling him a short, simple sheep story. And he tells this story of a rich man who has a thousand sheep and cattle, and a guest comes to visit the rich man, and the rich man, instead of taking one of his own sheep, which he never would have missed, somehow he had the power over a poor man who lived near him to take that sheep. And that sheep, in the hyperbole of the story, that sheep like drinks from the same cup as the owner, drinks, eats off the same plate, sleeps in the bed. This is like lamb chop. This, this is the family pet. And the rich man takes the family pet and serves it to his guests. And David is rankled. I mean, he is sending down soldiers' curses. And Nathan, the pastor, lets him go on. And when there's this pregnant pause... You are the man. Not prepared for such a David. Man after God's own heart. Well, these stories are in the Old Testament so that we can learn about God and that we can learn about us and we can learn how we connect and have relationship. We learn from these stories the happiness of God and Christ, and what makes Christ happy? Well, let me make two observations about this story with some application thrown in. First observation about this story is that it's a story about sin. It's a sin story. Now, when we hear the word sin often in our culture and in our language, we think more of it as a moral term, and it is a moral term. It's about right and wrong, do and don't, good and bad. There is that aspect of the word sin, but the way sin is used in the scriptures is not only as a moral term, but also a relational term. Sin is used to describe about how we're connecting with God or not. Sin is about how, at times, we avoid Him. Sin is about how, at times, we uh, want other gods instead of the true God. Sin is a word that describes, at times, how we want to act like our own God. 
and take life into our own hands. Sin is that description of how we're doing in relationship with him. And as we think of it in that way, we learn there's three important features of sin that we always must keep in mind. The first is that sin, especially in this story, sin is always a personal matter between us and God. It's personal. Sin is personal. Did you notice how easily David got worked up about someone else's sin? We're really good at that. We are really, really good at getting angry how bad other people are. It's a different story at times when we think about our own relationship with God. And we lose track of our own sin and our own sinfulness and our own proneness to wonder. Sin is always personal. It's always about you are the man. You are the woman. It's always about David saying in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. It's personal. The gospel begins there with our own sin in sight of a holy God. But it goes from there, a personal matter, to uh, the, the understanding of sin as uh, deceiving. Sin is very deceptive. My guess, I would bet the money I have in my savings account, that David did not have this like, moment with Bathsheba where it was just a, all of a sudden, boom, wow, David has lust and he, all this happens. My belief is that this was a series of a hundred or 200 or 300 small decisions, like staying home when the army goes out. It's like all these decisions, small at a time, led to a major, major decision that made his life. Sin is usually a series of small decisions that add up. It's deceptive. Sin is usually the kind of coping mechanisms that we use to get through life at times. I've heard this over the years where myself and others, they'll say, yeah, I just, you know, I made that choice because I needed to survive. I needed it. I just needed it. How many times do we think that way about our own sin? I just, I just, the other, not, sometimes we think we need it to survive. We need it. Other times we think we earned it. I deserve this. Do you know how hard my marriage, I, I have sat around the table with believers looking me in the eye and saying, I know it was the wrong thing to have an affair. I know. But it was a, it was a hard marriage. I, I deserve this. Sin is deceptive. Eugene Peterson in his great book about David and Leap Over a Wall he says that when David sent for Bathsheba, he was being a lover. What could be better than that? And then he says when David sent for Uriah, he was being a king. What could be better than that? Sin is personal, and it's deceptive. And the last thing we learn is that sin has consequences. I'll be far too brief on this. We don't have time to unpack this. But we know that from this moment forward, this hard decision David makes, his life becomes a wreck. His kids turn on him. His sons start killing each other. He has a daughter that gets raped by one of his sons. It's just a mess. Sin has consequences. 
We live in a moral universe created, developed, and destined by a holy being. And when we make decisions that go against the moral fabric of the universe, the moral grain, they're splinters. They're splinters. One more minute on this, this idea of a sin story. I think on the surface, we often think of this, yeah, David, he got caught up in a moment of lust. He made a bad decision and everything went south. And I, I would argue that this is not a story. I mean, lust is involved. This is not a story about lust. This is a story about power. From the opening statement, editorial comment, that David should have been out with the army, but he wasn't. He abdicated power to the very end when Nathan confronts him. He doesn't tell a lust story. He tells a power story. And to the very middle, through it all, 11 times in chapter 11, we read the word sent. Like, David is in charge. This is a story about power. And so, I could not let us go without a bit of a power check on our own lives. I mean, we all have influence. We all work with power. We, have, we are power brokers in our home. We are power brokers at work. We are power brokers in our friend group. We know power. I mean, Nietzsche said that power is the basic human drive. Yeah. I, I don't know. Nietzsche, who, you know. But what I do know is that we all know power. We do. <laughs> Reminded of a story of a Massachusetts governor in the 1950s. His name was Christian Herter. And uh, he was running for re-election. He'd had a long, busy day on the campaign trail, so much so he hadn't been able to eat breakfast or lunch. Comes to speak at a barbecue in the evening. They're serving chicken dinners. Woo! And he walks through the line, holds out his plate, and the lady in charge of the chicken puts one piece of chicken on his plate. And Christian Herter says, ma'am, I've been on the campaign trail all day. I'm really hungry. Could I have another piece of chicken? And the woman says, my instructions were to give out one piece of chicken per person. And Christian Herter says, but I'm really, really hungry. Could I please just have one more piece? And she says, one piece per person. <laughs> then Christian Herter, the governor of Massachusetts, says to this woman, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. To which the woman replies, yeah, and I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> Move along, mister. Here's the thing. We've been on both sides of the plate. We know what it feels like to have someone exercise their power or their reputation over us. We know how that feels. But we've also been on the other side of the plate when we have used our own influence and reputation to get what we want. When it comes to power, Jesus said these words to his disciples who were in a kind of a power dispute in their small group. <laughs> he says, Jesus called them together, his small group, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. So just a quick power check in our lives. Knowing that Jesus calls us to serve and hold power in service of others in all the realms in which we have influence, how's it going at home for you? Those of you who are married, I heard a report on NPR last week that even in homes where both spouses work and where the wife is the main breadwinner, she still does most of the household chores, surveys show. I'm looking for elbows there. <laughs> Do you perhaps need a discussion on holding power in service of your spouse or children? How's that going for you at home? How's the power dynamic? Do you view even the household chores as a way to serve, or do you view that as, well, you know, I deserve that because I'm whatever? How about at work? Power check. Do you view your job as a place to serve and help others flourish in their work? Do you, are you willing to share advice and welcome and wisdom? Or do you view your job mostly as, well, I just want it to be easy, I want my life to be comfortable, stay out of my way? Power check with your influence at work. And one more, how about your friend groups? Small group, you know, any kind of club, whatever you're involved with, even your kids' sports teams. <laughs> Do you view your participation there as a place to serve or as a place to like hold power, or to, 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 to like be exclusive and say, well, I like my group the way it is. I don't want new people. Are you open-handed, open-armed, or, you know, use your power to keep it closed. Some power check for us. This is a story about sin. But it's also a story, second observation, about salvation. It's a salvation story. What do we mean by it being a salvation story? Simply this, that in this flow of David now being confronted with his sin and coming back to the Lord, the happiness of God is forgiving sinners. We see his first step is to recognize sin to recognize his sin. When he is confronted by Nathan, do you know what David's first words are in chapter 12? I have sinned against the Lord. He owned it. He owned his part in the relationship, his fail in the relationship. He didn't cower, he didn't run, he didn't defend, he didn't blame. He owned it. He confessed his sin. I'm telling you, that sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is a sentence of hope. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Not because of his righteous living, but because of his tenderness in confession. His heart sprung back with this gospel elasticity and allowed Jesus, who was happy to forgive sinners, to forgive him again. And again and again, he confessed his sin. That sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is hope. Martin Luther, he once said, when you're caught in sin, you're like, be a sinner and sin boldly. Now, let me frame that. He's not meaning go out and sin all you can. But he's saying that when you're confronted with your sin, be courageous and confess it. God doesn't save fictitious sinners. He saves real sinners. Own it. Confess and experience 
the forgiveness of Christ and the happiness in him forgiving. Just a word of application to us as a church with this. Do we have a confessional culture here at Waterstone? Hmm. So, I think that means at least three things. One, are we comfortable with sinners in our midst? <laughs> this past week, I sat on a panel that... Um, we're part of the Rocky Mountain Church Network. The director, John Kraft, is getting his doctorate. I was privileged to sit on the dissertation panel. And he shared, he, he, he surveyed 300 churches in our fellowship. <laughs> this was interesting. Uh, on division in the church over the last three years. <laughs> Let's just say he had a lot to write about. <laughs> There's a church in Utah, a little larger than us. But uh, this church made it into the dissertation. And he shared that this church is so effective in reaching people for Jesus. And, and people are attracted to his beauty that they have in their church on any given Sunday 40 or 50, get this, non-believers, not yet Christians, who are serving in the church. Now, they're not leading small groups or preaching or anything like that, but they're serving coffee, they're running sound, they're playing in the praise band. But here's what made the dissertation. There was a woman who is not yet a Christian who wanted to hold babies in the nursery. And she was gay. The pastor, to his credit, he never like blindsided anyone. He always took these things to the elders. Hey, is it okay if a non-believing gay woman bounces babies in the nursery? And the elders said, you bet. That's not like an influential position. She's not a Christian. You know, we don't judge the outside world. She's in, you know, on a journey. Bounce baby. Well, you can imagine when word of that got out, that was a bit of a controversy in this church. And about 10 to 12 families left the church. So I've had time to process this. I know I'm just dumping this on you, and you're going to think about this for a while. But I want you to know where I would come down and where I would talk to the elders. I would never do anything like this here at Waterstone without the elders. We'd probably talk about it over dinner on Tuesday. But um, what I would say to the families who were leaving is this, like, Jesus... He welcomed sinners, and he was comfortable around sinners. And I don't see bouncing babies as like an influential position. And the woman's gay. Well, you know, families at Waterstone let me hold their babies. And I'm a liar. And I'm a gossip. And I've looked at porn. And I'm a Christian, and I know better. But you let me hold your baby. I'm going to move along now. <laughs> There's a second part of this confessional community. Are we comfortable around sinners? Second, do we have a confessional culture in that we welcome people to confess their sins here? So let me put a test on you this way. When we have an altar call, and by the way, we're not having one today, so there's no manipulation here. Uh, 
you don't need to come forward today. But when we do, what are you thinking about the one or two people that come down often for prayer? You're thinking, oh, man, first of all, it's all the right. I hope they're okay. I wonder if it's their marriage. I wonder if they're struggling with a substance abuse. Whatever you're thinking. But you're thinking kind of glad it's them, not me, maybe. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? May I frame it a little differently and maybe give you a question to think about in those terms? What if when we had an altar call, this was your thought process? Hmm, let me think this week. Have I sinned? Have I sinned? Uh, Do I need any kind of prayer in my life or anything? Is everything like 100% good? May I suggest that the question you might want to ask is, is there any reason I shouldn't go down for prayer or to give God something from my life and lay it down? Or we had a woman walk down a couple weeks ago and I had an amazing conversation with her and she said, she came forward and said, the only reason I'm here is because I need more Jesus and I want to give him everything in my life. She's walked with the Lord a long time. The question is, is there any reason you shouldn't come down? That's the question. And the third, confessional culture, do you have a Nathan in your life, one-on-one? Have you given anyone a hunting license to look at your life and tell you short, simple sheep stories? That's why we have small groups. That's why we have men's and women's ministries. That's why we have 20s, 30s. All that. Do you, do you know another believer well enough who can in, give you input into your life or even give you like some confrontation when needed? That's really, really important, and you can find that. This is a salvation story, and the first part of it for David was recognizing his sin, and the last part of it was recognizing the forgiveness. So you know how David's feeling about all this because we can read his spiritual journal, which is called the Psalms. David was journaling exactly about how he felt, and in Psalm 51, he writes this song to be sung in the church after his affair with Bathsheba. Wow. We don't sing too many songs about adultery here at Waterstone. (laughs) Yet. When David writes this song, there's two really interesting things. One is there's only four words in the song that describe the sin. Four words. In fact, in the Hebrew language, there's only about four verbs that describe sin. I'm telling you, sin is about as boring as watching the Colorado Rockies play. (laughs) But in that song... There are 19 different verbs that talk about what God does with our sin. He cleanses us. He restores us. He renews us. He washes us. He purges us. You'll hear it because we're going to read it in a minute to end the sermon. He, (laughs) we like to say at Waterstone, the main event is not your sin. The main event is what God does with your sins. And he washes them away. You are free 19 different ways. 19 different ways. So as we close, two take-homes. 
One is that if this has sits, the gospel of being forgiven sits deeply in our heart, we become taps of grace as well. In other words, what makes us happy is to forgive. What makes us happy is to dispense grace. God is most happy when he's forgiving sinners and dispensing grace. We should be too. So how can you creatively tap grace out? So Philip Yancey's great book, Vanishing Grace, went there this week, and just two, he, he has a whole chapter on how church can dispense grace and be grace taps. I keep doing this because I'm thinking of a beer drive, in case you don't tap. So, amen. That, fine. Finally, I get the amens. Yeah. So he, in the chapter, he tells us one story about a, he called a recovering Southern Baptist pastor. And uh, he says that he started a cigar club for men in his church. Why cigar club? Because when men smoke cigars, everything comes out. We do what the cigars tell us to do. And he said, I have seldom had a more confessional community than in the cigar club. Go and do likewise. There was another one that he told a woman in her church started an outreach to telemarketers. And what she does is recruit a couple people in her church, and they don't block calls. They take all the calls they can from telemarketers, and after they do their spiel, she says to them, how are you doing? <laughs> and she gets their name, and she has prayer lists of all the telemarketers she's talked to, and she prays that God's grace would bust into their life. How about you? Can you be creative? with grace. And the last thing is this, that some of us this morning might need that grace. David experienced the happiness of God in forgiving his sin. Some of you need to hear that you walked in this morning dragging burdens, reams of regret, gullies of guilt. You drug it in here this morning. You need to know that God forgives you. The work is done on the cross. You are forgiven. And what confession is, it's not a transaction. It's an acknowledgement. It's 2020 eyesight again on how much God forgives your sin. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. 19 different ways. And your life is already under redemption construct. You know what happened, right? David and Bathsheba had another son. His name in the scriptures we know as Solomon, which means dove or peace. But do you know, we forget this, that God had a special name for Solomon that only God used. Do you know what it was? Jedidiah, which means my beloved. Because God redeemed this situation in David's life so much that through that beloved son would come a thousand years later, the beloved Son, Jesus. And God has worked everything out in our lives to this moment to give you and you watching online. He wants to give you his beloved Son. He worked David's failure and Bathsheba's brokenness. And he gave his beloved Son. He wants to give the beloved Son to you this morning. So as we read Psalm 51, just the first like 12 verses, would you stand? And as these words of forgiveness wash over us, as they wash over us,
Just talk to the Lord. Some of you may be saying, Lord, save me. Save me. Others of us saying, Lord, I know I'm forgiven. I want to get back with you. Back with you. However the Spirit leads your heart, hear these words. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For you know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. The word of the Lord. Let's stand amazed now and sing of his love. <laughs> 